Watling Street has always been there. It was one of the first lines on the map, running from the White Cliffs of Dover through London and the Midlands into North Wales, a road simultaneously mundane and extraordinary, shaping the modern world and ancient history alike. We are going to take a journey along Watling Street, looking for the island's true face. John Higgs, author of Watling Street, and a man with an uncanny ability to uncover little-known corners of history and culture and make surprising connections between them. In our final leg of the journey, John and I head to Wales, from Oswestry through Snowdonia to a car park in Anglesey. We'll talk stories and national identity with Keris Matthews, explore the symbol of the dragon across the globe, discuss the film Penders Fen, hear a tale or two from storyteller Eric Madden, and finish with a specially commissioned poem from Selena Gone. Episode 4, Here Be Dragons. So, John, we've been to some uh, salubrious locations uh, across Britain and Wales together, including um, Milton Keynes, early hours of the morning. Mm -hmm. And now we are in Oswestry, at the foot of Oswald's Well. Which you can probably just about hear. You see the water gushing out under this this grill. Let's have a listen. So we're in the final leg of our journey and we're straddling the border of England and Wales and ahead of us as well, just standing on a bank at the top of a bank above the well, there's an impressive statue of an eagle which looks like it's, it's got in its, um, its beak um, a, man's, a man's arm. Let's, yeah. let's hear the story, John. Come well, on. this is, uh, I think, the preferred story of the, the Battle of Masserfield, um, which is the one that you tend to hear more when you, when you come here, to, you come to Oswestry. Uh, king Pender, the uh, pagan king of Mercia, um, defeated Oswald, later St. Oswald, but at, the, at that time a, a northern king, a warlord, he came invading uh, and was defeated. And you hear two stories about this. One story is that uh, Pender dismembered Oswald uh, and, uh, and then an eagle swooped down and picked up an arm and it took this arm and it flew up and dropped the arm into a tree which became Oswald's tree which is the, the root of the, the place name Oswestry. Mm. Uh, the arm then fell out of the tree, hit the ground and because Oswald would later be made a saint, uh, it, uh, a spring bubbled up and this is the, the spring we're, we're standing over now. And this is kind of a, you know, uh, a sort of a great pagany story. It's got it's got giant birds. It's got dismembered uh, body parts. You know, it's everything about it to like. I, just, I can't help feeling that the other version of the story is more plausible. Uh, and in this version, which you don't hear a huge amount, um, Pender uh, defeated Oswald, and because Pender was a pagan and because Oswald was a Christian, uh, he uh, nailed him to a tree. He, he basically crucified him just to make a mockery of his religion, you know. Uh, and that became Oswald's tree. Um, and I think that sort of version is probably more likely. But it's Oswald who's celebrated here, not Pender. Absolutely, because Oswald was promoted afterwards to, to the position um, of a saint. I wonder about another, a man, a thousand years even earlier than she, king of Midland England, this... Last of his kind, last pagan king in England, fighting his last battle 
against the new machine. That battle in which he is to fall. King Pender. What mystery of this land went down with him forever? What wisdom? A film that you introduced me to, David, uh, was this, this wonderful 1970s uh, Alan Clark movie done for the BBC uh, called Pender's Fen. Mm. Can you tell me about Pender's Fen? Pender's Fen is the story of a, of a young man, Stephen, growing up uh, with a, in a family where his father is, uh, is a local vicar. He's sent to the local public school. And Stephen is full of, of certainty and very conservative opinions about the world around him. He's, he's, he's really sure of, uh, mm. of, of what is right and wrong. But he's, he's, plagued by, he's plagued by his burgeoning sexuality. And he's terrified that um, you know, he's, he's not going to fit in because he's having homosexual fantasies. Mm. Which, well, yes, the scenes where, where Stephen is, is um, clearly having wet dreams um, symbolised by little flashes of lightning and jolts in the bed and then he wakes up and there's a demon um, succubus yeah. sitting there on the bed staring at him. And, 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 it, and it doesn't disappear when you think it will. Yes. It just stays there. <laughs> it does. So what happens in the film is that, is that those certainties... Um, and those conservative ideas of Stevens start to start to be dismantled. Even his father is going through sort of a struggle and questioning, almost blasphemous ideas around the true nature of, of, of Christ and Christ, Christ's teachings. The pagans practiced human sacrifice. Do we not? And there are millions through the fire to Moloch, living and dead. You know the old meaning of pagan as well as I do. Belonging to the village. Villagers sneered at as something petty. Petty it can be. Yet it works. The scale is human. People can relate there. Man may yet in the nick of time revolt and save himself. Revolt from the monolith, come back to the village. The themes of the film seem feel so prescient that it's this questioning of how we can be small-minded about what is national identity, what it mm. is to be English, what it is to be male, mm. um, and what it is to be certain about ourselves and the things around us. And Stephen's world is, is, is totally pulled apart and shaken, and yet there's, a, there's a, um, a death and rebirth for him. At the end of the film, he rejects the things that he thought were dear and important to him. You have to be born in us. Then you become pure light. No. No. Oh. I am nothing pure. My race is mixed. My sex is mixed. I am woman and man. Light with darkness. Mixed. I am mud and flame. It's almost like the story of Pender is sort of being forgotten, but because he is a vital thing of the earth, he was always bound to sort of regrow. And it's the same with Pender's Fen, that film, because it's, it's got such a... Um, such a power it was it, you know you can it can never really be forgotten stephen be secret child be strange dark true impure and dissonant cherish our flame our dawn the roads and the hallways the lines that divide you Days of the underdark 
never really seen England and Wales as being actually separate. They sort of flow into each other in, in, uh, in my way of thinking. And that's sort of approach I really wanted to, to take in this book. But we're now going to continue following the A5. We're going to travel deeper and deeper into, into Wales because it's known as the land of song and it's also a land of story. And, and I think these are probably the, 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 the greatest tools we have for understanding our, our ourselves, our sense of identity. And I think we're lucky because just before we, just before we take the A5 and before we head in, into, into, into the mountains... Uh, there's a festival near here um, in that borderland uh, at Harden, which is Caris Matthews' uh, good life experience. Uh, and if, if anyone can tell us uh, about song, about the land of song, it will be Caris. The land of the old stones will rise up inside you. on a flat piece of grass at the minute. In fact, it's flat lands all the way from Chester to Harden Old Castle, which is why on this very land, masses of battles were fought between England and Wales. Llewellyn the Great particularly came back again and again and again to fight over this area. And in fact, he raised the old castle to the ground on one attempt in the 13th century. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting being on Borderlands. We're in Harden. Yeah, because uh, I'm, f- I'm from around here, and, and growing up near Borderlands, uh, borders just seem ludicrous, right? There's no point where, like, the Englishness starts and the, and the Welshness <laughs> sort of stops. So it's kind of nice uh, being here with... You're from, you're from Cardiff, Swansea, is that right? I'm and a mongrel. You're... Yes, a mongrel from South Wales. So born in Cardiff, mm. but neither of my parents were from Cardiff. Okay. And then we moved to Swansea, and neither of my parents were from Swansea. Yeah. Do you know, it's that sort of thing. So Clemethley then went to school and then Pembrokeshire, where a lot of my family from. So mongrels, we're all yeah. mongrels. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, with borders. So it was a poet called uh, Kai Miller who said about his own heritage, who's Jamaican, and about the borders there when the cartographer comes to town to try and lay down the law. Mm. And I was like, well, you can't do that, you know. <laughs> and then these borders wriggle. So yeah. I, when I look at borders, I just imagine them wriggling all the time through history. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Oswestry, where we, we've just come from, um, uh, it used to be Wales and now it's England, you know, and th- th- these things, swap it. the question is, what country is that? The, the answer is, well, when? When are you talking about? Yeah, they're, they're, they are quite meaningless. And even countries themselves. When yeah. did the country become a country? Like, German didn't exist. Yeah. Germany, I mean, didn't exist for... for, for it's only a new country. Yeah. Wales, what is Wales? You know, go back far enough, and, you know, the Welsh people, or Welsh speakers, or Brythonic speakers, yeah. were from South Scotland right down to the south, of, you know, of England, so... <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always curious as to why Wales has this, this title, the land of song, because... Pretty much everywhere I've been has been a land of song, but it, it's, it's, it ah. seems odd that Wales claims that. Oh, no, it's not odd at all, and I, I jump in at this mm. point. Because um, you've got Mali as well, which is known as the land of song. Um, and if you go back in, in, into, um, into the archive and find the writings of a very early travel writer called Gerald of Wales, you'll find out exactly why we're called land of song. He used to travel around France, Ireland, England, Wales, 
um, and uh, you know write about his travels and about the peoples he'd find there and you'd find some lovely quotes which you'll, you'll look up and find but basically that when when they sing in groups they don't sing in unison like our uh, like people in England but they sing in glorious harmony and uh, this goes back into the I think it's 12th century or something like that that he wrote this it's uh, we just sing, you know. When I was in school, we sang in maths, we sang in science, we sang when we were going on field trips. You sang, you sing on the terraces, you sing at home, you sing in the pubs, obviously. We just sing, you know. Mm. So that's why the land of song. And it's and I, I moved to America in 2000 odd, and I thought that's it. That's my romantic idea of Wales, and that's going to be old fashioned, and that's going to be. That, that's my idea of Wales and that's going to end because things move on and things change and then I c- came back in 2007 and went to the Millennium Stadium to watch a rugby match and damn if the whole bloody 70 odd thousand people just burst out in spontaneous harmony at m- you know it's not just singing because that's what everyone else is doing but singing you know like yeah. poof, as much air as you can fill into your lungs you throw through your vocal cords you know it's singing and, and like tears, massive tears coming down going, this is the land, you know, this is it. It's a bloody good thing to be known for though, right? Of all the things. Yeah. We're not known for much else. <laughs> Small little country, you know. At least it's not about the sheep anymore. <laughs> one, one of the things connected with Wales that we wanted to explore for this episode was the symbol of the dragon. Oh, and that's does, great. Does, what kind of resonance does that have for you? Well, just think about history and uh, King Henry VIII and everything, because this, this is what we're talking about, is the, the fight between the white dragon and the red dragon, isn't it? I kind of feel that uh, the dragon's been sort of subverted by, by the Normans into this sort of fall guy for, like, rich knights to kill to look good. <laughs> if you go back before that, the red dragon and the white dragon, they're the spirit of the people, basically. They're very similar to how they're seen in in Japan and in, in China and they're just they're just elemental and they're just just like awesome and they're, and they're just wonderful wonderful things and you find and you find that in the in the Welsh myths and things like that it's just ever since St George came along they, they're just it's it's just like you know it's, it's like a building in a Hollywood film to, to be blown up it's just there to make someone else look good I'm sort of really hoping we can redefine the, the dragon yeah, yeah. It's, it's like they put a price tag on it when, yeah. it when before it was some mysterious thing that was a power beyond ourselves and way bigger than ourselves and then all of a sudden it's just like that eh, I've just slayed him there you go the, done the worst is well it's Yorkshire not Wales but the, the dragon of Wantley yeah. uh, the story is that the, the rich guy the, the lord the more of more hall he thought I'll go kill a dragon so he goes down to Sheffield and he gets the pointiest suit of armour <laughs> he's got these big pointy boots and he, and he, he waddles off to by um, to hide by a well and the dragon comes along and he sneaks up behind the dragon and he kicks the dragon up the arse with his pointy shoe. And that is the weak point of the dragon of Wantley. You kick it up the arse, it dies. Now, there's no way... This, that's the story. And there's no way in Japan, right, or China, they would have a dragon story like that. Oh,
So, uh, Keris mentioned dragons there, and uh, one person who knows all about the subject of dragons is my uh, my co-host David Bramwell, and he knows uh, so much because he has a special book. Isn't that true? <laughs> I have, I have a book by Peter Hogarth and Val Cleary. I've no idea when this book was written. It's a beautiful old book. I'm guessing. Um, maybe the 1970s, it's one of those lovely old hardbacks with lots of colour plates in, which tells you everything you need to know about the dragon. And there are many things you need to know about the dragon because uh, the dragon is a symbolic creature which can be found in pretty much every culture around, um, around the globe and particularly a symbol of chaos, as a, sim- as a symbol for the forces of nature, for the forces of weather. Um, and particularly water, surprisingly. This is, this is strange emanation of the, of the force of the dragon east and west. As the, as the idea of the dragon travels, travels to the east, it becomes a benevolent creature in Chinese tradition. Uh, the dragon is a symbol of good luck. It is a symbol of strength and power. Dragons would, never, would rarely turn on humans unless provoked. And um, such a provocation might be, uh, inadvertent provocation, might be the eating of... Um, of roasted swallows, because uh, because it's it's the it's the <laughs> it's the food of choice of the dragon is the roasted swallow. So if you were if you were a sailor who had a who who dined on roasted swallow the night before sailing, then then that could be a perilous journey because if a dragon smelt the roasted swallow, it would um, it would attack you and eat you. Mm-hmm. Um, in the way that elephants, uh, we're told, are terrified of you know, little mice. Mm. The dragon, dragons are terrified of, of uh, centipedes. This is why in China, in chi- Chinese stories, dragons always live at the bottom of lakes mm. because you can't get centipedes at the bottom of lakes. So it's interesting that we associate dragons with the islands on the far west of the Eurasian landmass and, and the islands on the far east of the Eurasian landmass, like Japan. Mm. Um, how, are they, how are they different? My theory on this is that two very different religions developed mm. in, in East and West. And an idea within, that comes from the Bible, that nature is there to be feared, to be tamed, to be exploited, is in stark contrast to your Eastern philosophy of, say, Taoism, Zen, where nature is something to be revered because it is perfect. Mm. And we will never attain that perfection. Mm. I suppose in Christianity, we only attain that perfection if we open ourselves to God. In, in the East, it's more that we... we we learn as best we can from from nature and how nature operates. So nature is nature is not a, a malevolent force. Um, it is it is a force for good. Is and so out of that the dragon. If the dragon is this is the symbol of chaos, the chaos from which comes comes order of nature. Then it's yeah it's a benevolent force. Whereas in the West we obviously we have the the stories of people like Saint George going and and, and killing dragons. And throughout the medieval period. There were, there were many, many dragon stories. Dragons were being slayed left, right and centre. Although, at the same time, dragon parts were also being sold regularly and said to bestow great powers upon people. So if you were to taste drag- a boiled dragon blood in the 12th, 13th, 14th century, it could bestow upon you the gift of avian tongue. <laughs> which was apparently very useful yeah. um, back in the day. And... Uh, and the classic story of St. George killing the dragon was the dragon was an embellishment to the story that came a thousand years mm-hmm. after the, the, the first stories of St. George began to spread across across Europe. And, uh, and these were great romantic stories in the, in the um, 
uh, around you know 400 AD, these stories began to, to circulate. It wasn't until the 1300s that the dragon appeared. It was a French romantic writer that um, found he was onto a good thing, writing dragons into into the stories of. Uh, of, uh, of our martyrs and uh, and saints. So, can, so I'd like to ask you a question, yeah. John, <clears throat> because this question is not answered in the book, mm. and that is, how did the dragon become a positive symbol for the Welsh? Well, it's down to Henry Tudor, really. He used it on his on his banners as he um, as he came to defeat Richard III in the Battle of Bosworth Field. Uh, it was associated with the House of Tudor, and the House of Tudor were Welsh, of course. But there are stories linking the Red Dragon to Wales from way before um, uh, the, the Wars of the Roses. In particular, if you go back to Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was writing, I think, the early 1100s, he has a story, uh, a really wonderful story um, that's based not far from here, uh, in the foothills of the mountains of Snowdonia, involving a red dragon and a white dragon and a wizard and all the good things, basically. And um, I think that's our next stop. Mabon in Snowdonia is a Welsh Shangri-La. Five acres of woodlands and streams, five miles from Snowdon, three miles from Watling Street. At the heart of Mabon is a thatched Celtic roundhouse. Dotted around are its dwellings, a straw bale hogan, an oaken slate longhouse, a cedar log lodge, a cob cottage, a redwood chalet, a hobbit hut and a cedar cabin. It is the work of storyteller and journeyman Eric Madden. This place, Kaimabon, has been very much built on stories and storytelling has been an important part of it from the beginning and particularly trying to find out what the old stories was. Um, my dad spent years writing books about walking in North Wales and, and I think I've, I've inherited his, his love for the place. Maybe it's harder for... English people to tune into these old stories. It's not so hard, perhaps, for the Welsh. But then there are other stories in other parts of the country which are important too. I, I think that, you know, I suppose my sense is we need to know, you know, where we come from in order to be able to make, you know, good decisions about where we're going. You know, you know I go to the place where Math, son of Mathonwy, Bear, son of Bearlight, was supposed to have had his hall, or at least that's where I think he had his place, it was known as Caiodathil. I stand on that hill there and I, I kind of feel that I'm channeling Math, you know, when I speak. And I can do that with Merlin and with Gwydion and Mabon, you know, these, these kind of mythic characters. In fact, that, that particular valley, the Nanti Valley, goes from the sea, from from Dinas Dinsley all the way up, includes Caiodathil, the story of Math. Further up the valley is, is where um, um, Mabon, son of Modron, the great son of the Great Mother, is, according to the stanzas of the graves from Welsh legend, buried. Mabon, son of Modron, is said to have been buried in the upper Nantley Valley, and we know roughly where it was. So there's his story there, which is a great story. Further up, you go through the pass, a place called Drusakoid, which means the door to the wood. And that pass up there is full of stories of the Tulwith Teg, the, the fair folk, the fairy people. 
And then you go around Ur-Arran, this very striking peak mountain just sort of next to Snowdon. Down the other side, there's Dinosemris. There's the whole story about the dragons and Merlin's prophecy and so on. So that's about a 20-mile walk. And for my money, it's the, it's the most mythically rich 20 miles in Britain. Okay, so this is the, I suppose, like the village square, the centre of Kaimabon. Not that it's square, it's round really, like most things here. But uh, we've got a round house there which is a thatched uh, circular house, conical roof, um, the kind of dwelling that people lived in in Britain prior to the coming of the Romans. So, you know, for something like 3,000 years, our ancestors lived in round houses like that. And if you go into the mountains around here, uh, you'll, you'll see on the maps hut circles, and, and now, of course, they're just rings of fallen stone overgrown with brambles and bracken, but this is what they would have been like. So it's a very much an ancestral building, if, if you consider your ancestors as going back beyond the Romans. And I know from your book, you know, you reckon that most people, in fact, don't. But, you know, I certainly have, do and have done now for quite some time. So um, that was the first building I built here. Maybe we should go over there and just have a look inside. Yeah. This, this is actually a living building. We use it now. We use it... Oh, every week. Well, I tell stories a lot in here, as do others, um, but also we have singing and poetry. As our eyes become accustomed to the dark there in the roundhouse, Eric begins to tell the enchanting story of Merlin and King of the Britons, Fortigen. So he ordered his soldiers to dig, and soon the earth was flying through the air, and sure enough, they found the underground pool. He recounts how the young Merlin saved himself from sacrifice by telling Vortigen of an underground pool containing two stone jars. Vortigen's soldiers dig, and sure enough, they find the two stone jars. But before they can get close enough, the jars break open, and two dragons emerge, one red, one white, and they lock in mortal combat, until eventually the red drives the white dragon away. What does it mean? Said Vortigen, what does it mean? And you can imagine, you know, like, everybody would have been terrified by these dragons, except for Merlin, he just stood there calmly and sort of absorbed this dragon power into his being as they kind of whooshed up from the ground beside him. It threw him into this prophetic trance, and he began to speak. He spoke words that everybody who heard it couldn't believe, you know, could come from the mouths of such a, a, a boy. And uh, as you know, the, the full prophecy is, is long, many pages, and, you know, it's very obscure, lots of sort of strange symbolism that we don't really understand today. Um, but I've been through it and I've, I've... So I've got a short version of the prophecy, which goes like this. The dragons are awake. There is a disturbance in the land. The red dragon is the people of Britain, the ancient ones, the bearers of tradition, those who have been here since the beginning. The white dragon is the Saxon invader, the greedy, grasping newcomer. And so they will chase each other back and forth across this land until such a time as arises the boar of Cornwall. Only then will peace and harmony be restored to this land. He will be the noblest king, and tales of his exploits will be as meat and drink to the storytellers who relate them in ages to come. But chaos and destruction will return. There will be centuries of it. 
until a people in wood and iron coats come and restore the eagle to Mount Urwidva. Gold shall flow from the hooves of bellowing cattle, silver from the lily and the nettle, from the first to the fourth, the fourth to the third, the third to the second, the thumb shall roll in oil. Though the goddess be forgotten, the soil will become fruitful beyond man's need. The fatted boar will proffer food and drink. The hedgehog will hide his apples in London. Underground passages will be built beneath the city. Stones will speak, the sea to France will shrink, and the secrets of the deep shall be revealed. But. Beware the ass of complacency, swift against goldsmiths, slow against ravenous wolves. Oak trees shall burn and acorns grow on lime trees. The seven river will flow out through seven mouths. Fish will die in the heat and from them serpents will be born and the health-giving waters at Bath shall breed death. But root and branch will change places and the newness of the thing shall seem a miracle. The healing maiden will return, her footsteps bursting into flame. She will weep tears of compassion for the people of the land, dry up polluted rivers with her breath, carry the city in her right hand, the forest in her left, and nourish the creatures of the deep. With her blessing, man will become like God, Waking as if from a dream, heart open, filled with light, radiant face glowing like the rising sun, shining eyes like twin silver moons, radiant ears shimmering with song, shining lips that dance over words, words of magic that burst into the air becoming swallows. The soul shall walk out, the mind of fire shall burn, and in the twinkling of an eye, the dust of the ancients shall be restored. So, and the young Merlin <laughs> collapsed with exhaustion from the effort of prophecy. When he came to, Vortigen was leaning over him, saying, Yeah, but what about me? What about me? All you can do, said Merlin, is flee for your life. And so Vortigen did flee further to the west. He found a hidden valley by the sea, built himself a timber tower, lived in uneasy peace there for some months. But by now, Ambrosius and Uther, the rightful heirs to the throne, had come of age and returned from Brittany and knew the first thing they must do was deal with Vortigen. So they followed his trail across the land and found this hidden valley by the sea, and there, with a single flaming arrow, they set his timber tower alight. And once again, Vortigen was forced to flee for his life, ran along the beaches up onto the cliff tops. His pursuers were closing in on him. He took one last breath and hurled himself at the rock off the cliff tops, crashing to his death on the rocks far below. That place is still to this day known as the Rock of the Leap, and the valley is Nantguthane, the Valley of Vortigen. As for the young Merlin, well, he knew that from that time on, he would have to bring about the rise. It was his task to bring about the rise of the boar of Cornwall. 
the one who would be the noblest king. Tales of his exploits would be as meat and drink to the storytellers and relate them in ages to come. And that, of course, was none other than Arthur. But that's another story. You said you first became a professional storyteller down in Cornwall, and you, you had the idea of building a roundhouse like this and um, uh, and a place like Caimabon. Um Do you think if you'd gone anywhere else in the country other than Snowdonia, do you think story would have had such a sort of vital role in in the, the place you were building as it has here? Is there something about this northwest part of um, of Wales? That is so 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 seeped, so rich in mythology that it's 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 uh, you wouldn't have been able to find that anywhere else in these islands. The thing about Snowdonia and Old Gwynedd is that actually it hasn't changed that much. Of course, there are there are towns and villages, no cities, no motorways, you know, um, and so the landscape itself is still very much as it was, and. Um, so when you walk around it, what you're seeing is what our ancestors saw. You know, you, you see the same shape of the land. That, that, you know, there's not been huge tectonic plate shifts in the last sort of few thousand years as far as we know. So, you know, what we see is what they saw. And um, for me, what I've found very interesting is, is to um, delve into all the stories. And yes, I think there are a lot of stories here. Um, it is... The, very mythically rich, I would say, and um, what else? Because these, you know, this is a this is a is a particularly um, powerful landscape, and trying to be relatively easily remembered so they can be passed on, you know. But also, they they're designed to touch people in some way, to to move people, and um, and that's what people need. They don't need. They're not, they, don't, they won't change because of the facts, you know, but they might change if they feel moved in some way, you know. So that's why we need stories that, that will kind of present the state of the world in a way which, which can move people to act rather than try and sort of convince them with statistics or whatever, you know. You know, like, I'll, I'll give you another little piece here that I like to... Um, quote uh, from time to time which is um, which is a, 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 a piece from a play called The Sleep of Prisoners it's quite well known now and it, it was written in the 50s you know Christopher Fry uh, but this little piece has been plucked out of it and used um, as, a, as a kind of an inspirational um, uh, kind of setting of a context in an inspirational way. So it goes, uh, The human heart may go the length of God. Cold and dark we may be, but this is no winter now. The frozen misery of centuries breaks, cracks, begins to move. 
The thunder is the thunder of the flows, the thaw, the flood, the upstart spring. Thank God our time is now, when wrong comes up to meet us everywhere, never to leave us until we take the greatest stride of soul we ever took. Affairs are now soul-size. The enterprise is exploration into God. It takes so many thousand years to wake. But will we wake for the whole Earth's sake? Well, John, you've done it again. You've um, brought me to one of the uh, hidden corners of the British Isles, <laughs> a car park in Hollyhead ending up at a place like this. It's a typical corner of, of Britain, isn't it? A, a sort of a fairly grubby car park. Is that what we should expect at the end of Watling Street? I guess the sadness is because the, the road has, has ended, really. The journeys continue from here. That's the way to Dublin. You know, mm. That's the way out to the wider world. Um, this, this is a port that faces the, uh, the, the rest of the globe, but the, the road is, is constrained to the island. We have no choice but to turn round and and head back. Our journey was really uh, about the island that we've crossed, you know, mm. that's really what we've been interested in. The road was uh, the excuse, uh, the excuse to luck again at, uh, at, at this place, at Britain. And it's very much, you know, uh, the notion of Britishness that we have is um, always a work in progress. You know? There was never a time in the, in the past when they got it right and they nailed it and then all of us have to live into you know, a heritage park uh, version of the country as it was in a, cer- a certain year. Um, it has to be constantly uh, uh, reinvigorated, uh, brought to life, uh, seen afresh, seen. Watling Street was, you know, very much... Originally it felt like, you know, my baby. I was just thought, how. Ah, I want to write about this road and I, I went and write about that road and I, I showed everyone and then you took it and then you go, I'll write a song about this so mm. you wrote that Watling Street song uh, and then uh, Greg Wilson, the DJ Greg Wilson uh, said, oh I'll remix it, I'll kindly remix it which, which he did with Pezza um, and it's these things just growing out of each other one leading to the other you couldn't predict any of this happening when I, when I set out to start but the fact that you set out to start doing something will take you somewhere you know that you always put one foot ahead of the the next and and something will happen you know just sitting still and going no, i don't have a, don't have the master plan i haven't worked it all out yet that doesn't that that takes you nowhere just you know set off just start something and you'll possibly end up with something like this this sort of psychedelic disco remix of your song that i think we should play out on because that's to celebrate the road i think this would be the perfect thing that's a lovely idea So we'll be playing you out with Greg and Pezza's wonderful remix of Watling Street. But before we go, there's one last person to visit. Poet and author Selina Godden, with a specially commissioned piece just for this podcast. Think of those that marched Watling Street before and those that will tread here in years to come. The road in shadow and the road in sun. The road before us and the road all done. History is watching us. And what will we become? 
This road is of flags and milestones, immigrant blood and sweat and tears. Built these cities, built this country, made Watling Street last all these years. Watling Street is made of protest and those not permitted to vote and those that are still fighting to speak with a boot stamping on their throat. Pessimism is for lightweights. Watling Street is not clear nor straight, but I believe living is about living true and love will conquer hate. When you lose something, you retrace your steps until you find it again. And Watling Street is older than history, times of gods and witches and dragons and men. We live in a time of building walls, but the language has always been the same. Them and us and us and them, burning bridges in shame and in God's name. But if there's one thing Watling Street teaches us, it's the same cycle with the same blatant flaw, that the rich can only stay rich by keeping the poor poor. Every king and queen knows this, all the king's soldiers and all the king's men. But the ghosts of slavery rise up and shout, never say never again. Watling Street is paved with conflict. Sometimes, just because people want to see a scrap, tearing lives apart, creating division by drawing borders on a map. We can choose the stories we tell and the page of history we share, the way we want to be remembered, and if we were dreaming or if we were really there. Pessimism is for lightweights. This road is never a straight white line. It's the bumps and curves and obstacles that make Watling Street yours and mine. Pessimism is for lightweights. We're under fire, bombarded like hailstones. Every morning, more negativity. Buzz, buzz, buzzing in your iPhones. And yes, the future is so bleak. There's no point marching to Downing Street. But they want you to feel powerless. So get up and out and on your feet. Pessimism is for lightweights. Watling Street is not easy or straight. But living here is about living alive and love will conquer hate. There is so much magic in having optimism, to have faith and to stay true to you. Because if you can look in the mirror and have belief and promise you will share wonder in living things, beauty, dreams, books and art, love your neighbour and be kind and have an open heart, then you're already winning at living. You speak up. You show up and you stand tall. It's silence that is complicit. It's apathy that's hurting us all. Pessimism is for lightweights. Don't eat low-hanging bitter fruit. Pessimism is for lightweights. Put all that doubt on mute. Pessimism is what pessimism does. Feeds all the negativity because as long as you're feeding ignorance and fear, there's no need to imagine a better world, dear. To believe in love takes balls and heart and guts. If you can keep your head whilst the rest of the world goes nuts. Shoulder to shoulder we fight the same fights as our parents yesterday. And they didn't silence them and they won't silence us today. Pessimism is for lightweights. Watling Street is not a straight white line. It's the bumps and curves and obstacles that make Watling Street yours and mine. You must believe in more. Believe love will conquer hate. And sing it loud and clear. Pessimism is for lightweights. 
Pessimism is for lightweights. Pessimism is for lightweights. Watling Street was never easy and straight. But living here is all about living alive and lively. And love will conquer hate. Watling Street Podcast was presented by David Bramwell and John Higgs and was produced by David Bramwell. The book Watling Street is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson and is available from all good bookshops, especially those within a five-mile radius of the A2 and the A5. Music and the title track Watling Street was by Oddfellows Casino and features on their latest album Oh Sealand, which is well worth spending your pocket money on. To find out more about John and David, visit drbramwell.com and johnhiggs.com. Further podcast featuring the dynamic duo can be found on Auditorium Podcast at oddpodcast.com. This podcast was funded by Arts Council England. If you liked it, please leave a review for us on iTunes. 